The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And we're going to talk about home renovations. Brian Banks, welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here is what's ahead. The Great Divide. While stocks get closer to reaching some major milestones, investors are pouring into bonds at record levels these days. We'll explore that and tell you why. Plus, a terrible investment. That's what T. Rowe Price is saying now about its involvement with WeWork. We'll have what's next and whether there are more shoes to drop. And is Facebook really the world's greatest copycat or the worst? That's all coming up for us. But we begin with today's markets and Dom Chu, who's recently done a deck renovation as well. And I did not use composite, Kelly. I used full PVC, but there was a reason for that. Anyway, home improvement aside, we are seeing a fairly tight range in trading today, even though what you're seeing is pretty much red across the screen. But it's not by that much. Again, nearly flat markets, a quarter of a percent of the downside for the Dow Industrials. For the S&P 500, at the highs of the day, we were up about three points at the lows down six. So again, just in the middle, but a fairly tight trading range today. One of the places that's getting a lot of attention is what's happening with software stocks. Now, this particular ETF, the ticker IGV, the iShares Expanded Tech Software ETF, is up half a percent today. It's nothing to write home about, but we're going to put a little star up here because it's a record high for this particular ETF. And by the way, we've never seen a big pullback in this particular ETF over the course of the past year. Those are pullbacks between 3 and 6%, not a huge one, so a lot of momentum still with software. And then we're going to end on shares of NVIDIA. It gets another gold star as well. We'll put that little circle right up here with a gold star because it's a record high for NVIDIA, better than expected profits, better than expected sales for this semiconductor maker, and a better than expected forecast, even though, Kelly, NVIDIA will take a hit from the coronavirus in China. It's still up 7%. On the day, back over to you. A monster week for NVIDIA. Dom, thanks. We appreciate it. As the Dow overall inches closer and closer to the 30,000 milestone, you'd think money would be pouring into this market. And it is the bond market. Bank of America is reporting the biggest weekly inflows ever into bond funds last week. If this pace keeps up, a trillion dollars will flood the bond market this year, more than twice what's going into equities. For more on this, I'm joined now by Andres Garcia Amaya. He's the CEO of Zoe Financial and Jerry Castellini is chief investment officer at Castle Arc Management. Great to have you both here. Andres, why this love, this euphoria uh, for bonds? Some have suggested, is it, is it an aging and demographic thing? You just have so much of the population, the baby boomers, retiring or, or at that phase of their lives uh, with each passing day that they kind of have to buy bonds. What do you think is going on here? So, so I think there is a structural story and then there is the cyclical story, right? So structurally, uh, there is definitely the, you know, the baby boomers that are t- 10,000 retiring a day and they need income to live on, right? So that's where the bond story, that structural is not going away. But then there's the Something that we've seen last year as well, which is that this agreement between equities and bonds about the recovery, the global recovery, right? Equities seem to be looking right now at PMIs improving and saying, you know what, put the headlines aside, there is going to be a global recovery. Uh, and you can see that by the fact that cyclical stocks are outperforming defensive stocks. But then on the bond side, you're not seeing yields rally at the same time, right? right? So I think that that disagreement is something to keep an eye on because one of them is going to be wrong. Well, at some point. And that's why it's interesting you frame it that way. Jerry, I'll, I'll ask you to sort of chew on this. If 
the bond and equity markets are in disagreement, then one of them has to be right. Um, but what if there are two parts of the, of the same coin, two sides of the same coin, because the inflows into equities are also massive, also on pace to be a record. They're just dwarfed by the bond inflows. And so I'm not going to argue too much about the, that uh, disagreement. The, the more compelling point, though, is that there's just so much liquidity out there. Hmm. Uh, people carry more cash than they've ever carried. There's so much Fed and, and central bank liquidity that's being pumped into the entire financial system. It's almost as though you need to buy both bonds and stocks. Right. And this happens over and over at bottoms in, in turns and cycles. Don't, don't take the bond as a, as a concern. T- look at it as there's so much more money behind that that can come into stocks. And that's where you have to look at the big opportunity we have in stocks based on pretty much the same driving fundamentals. Right. And let me come back to your, uh, both of you have opportunities, you think, uh, in this environment. We just have some news coming in. Let's get to this for one moment. Uh, it's a news alert on Apple. Josh Lipton joins us. Josh, what's going on? So, Kelly, news here on Apple that it continues to reopen its stores in China, uh, saying now it's going to open its store in Shanghai on Saturday. The company has seven stores in that city. Of course, this follows the news that Apple is going to open five of its stores in Beijing, albeit with limited hours. Uh, why do investors care? Because analysts estimate that about those, sto- those 42 stores in total generate about 10 percent of greater China revenue in a given quarter. Kelly, back to you. All right, Josh, thank you. And Andres, this is part of what we've been discussing. So every time there's been a coronavirus uh, negative headline, you see these bond yields globally sink further. Maybe we can get a little bit of a rebound here. Um, How significant is it to you to watch Apple as a harbinger of what's happening uh, with this outbreak? Yeah, I think it is definitely a... Uh, is one of the companies that if it were to be affected, it would affect the S&P, for instance, right, right? just on its own. But there's also the idea of like it's likely to affect other companies. Uh, I think the market so far have looked at this as and basically looked through it and said, you know what? Uh, is it a bad quarter potentially? Sure. Does this change the story, not just for the company, but for the global recovery? Uh, unlikely up to now. And I think that's why the markets are where they are. So let's talk about for a moment the retail sales report this morning, which was a little soft. It's confirming the softness we've seen for now kind of the past four or five months. And we saw bond yields sink on that, you know, closer to one and a half percent to your point. So it does seem as though there's this not just liquidity, which Jerry makes an excellent point about that goes back to central banks, where we've now had 800 rate cuts since since Lehman. It's not just liquidity. It also seems to be the bond market trying to sniff out, well, okay, is growth rolling over? Absolutely. I think that's a a perfect example of the bond market looking at certain indicators that are proving their thesis Mm -hmm. versus the equity uh, market looking at something like the PMI sub-index for trade orders starting to bottom out and saying, there it is, there's that V-shaped recovery that's coming. So where would you be invested? Well, one, I mean, similar argument, I think you have to own everything, right? (laughs) Uh, Especially especially for the people that matters the most that are in retirement. They can't just say, well, let's hope equities is right. They need fixed income to be that protection uh, for, their, for their portfolio. If you are asking, in essence, if I think this recovery is done, I don't think there's enough points, you know, enough data points to show that, especially when monetary policy, not just here in the U.S., but globally, is still expanding. Jerry, would you own everything, or do you think you have to be more selective? Well, you've had this opportunity, right? There's, uh, in the market itself, if you're not in the momentum stocks, uh, as you pointed out with the, several of them today, you know, they're, they're running past you. If you want to be a little more uh, discriminating, you would start with what's been 
hurt the hardest, really, from this entire coronavirus thing, and that's clearly the energy stocks. There's been a sell first, ask questions later approach, and you can buy names like EOG and Conoco now at wonderful values. On the other hand, if you want to stay with everything mode, you can buy Apple and Applied Materials and be in a tech area. My last and most logical, but a little odd in a uh, falling interest rate environment, don't for a second, underestimate the power of these financials. Hmm. Those are the companies that collect up all this liquidity, either in deposits, either in the ability to lend, or in monies to manage, or, or uh, all the different things that those big companies do. And they have incredible valuation stories running behind them. So it's, a, it's kind of an all-virtue uh, group of, of six different names. But if you're looking at opportunities right now, I would, I would look at all three of those sectors and the names that we just described. Wow. Hey, there's a lot of boats that are rising in these waters, guys. Thank you very much yeah. for joining me to talk about and analyze this today. We appreciate it. Jerry Castellini, Andres Garcia, Amaya. We move now to a very public rebuke. T. Rowe Price addressing shareholders about its investment in WeWork. T. Rowe, which invested in the startup back in 2014, has this to say. They said, quote, we made a small private investment in this upstart. Unfortunately, it has since caused us outsized headaches and disappointments. They added, quote, we are ready to declare this a terrible investment. T. Rowe saying it was left holding shares worth just a fraction of their original value. Joining me now for more on this is Peter Evis. He's a reporter at The New York Times. And Peter... How important is it for T. Rowe uh, to demonstrate better returns on these early stage investments, which were at one point seen as a, a big appeal to say to, to the public out there, hey, if you can't get your hands on some of these Silicon Valley startups, we can help you with that. Right. I think I think they did the right thing today. They they were very clear that they'd made a mistake. They wanted to make it known um, that they you know thought of this as a as a, an anomalous situation and they actually provided some details on their decision-making process and how they got it wrong. And I think it was important that a mutual fund company did that because, of course, you know, these vehicles are being sold to retail investors. And it was, it's always a super risky uh, uh, situation to be going into these companies as a mutual fund. And it was clearly, like they say, a debacle. And it was right for them to detail what went wrong. Um, I would be surprised that um, if, if, you know, I mean, it says in their, in their explanation and their mea culpa that they didn't invest in that many private companies. Hmm. Uh, it, was an, it was an error of judgment, not process. I don't know quite what the difference is there. But I think I would give them some credit for being upfront about what happened and also saying they're going to be super cautious in the future. Sure. No, it just seems to me more a sign of the times where, you know, once it was seen as, hey, look at us, we're in these hot startups. And now they're saying, well, we weren't in that many. Don't worry. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. They they were trying to show that they're capable of pulling back and they, in fact, didn't have that many. I agree. Yeah. And I wonder as well, I mean, you make a good point here that this there's a couple of issues. Um, number one, these are not as liquid investments as public equity. So even if they decided, you know, hey, we want to back off uh, of some of these investments, a little more difficult to execute that. And then even when they're involved, if they want to sort of contribute to positive change, because they also kind of throw some shade at SoftBank here, frankly. Right. Um, but the boards are a little bit harder to influence. You know, it's not the same as the control you might have it for some of the publicly traded companies. Exactly. I mean, again, it's the other level of risk here for private companies is that you can't get in and out if you want to quickly. And then, I mean, this is incredible detail in this in this piece of text where it says they uh, the management wouldn't let them offload uh, the rest of their stake last year. Can you imagine sitting on WeWork and not being able to like offload it mm. as you were as you were already negative yourself? I mean, any other shares on the public market, you you would do that. 
Um, yeah, it just, it just reveals the dangers. Sure. So what happens now, Peter, if there is, I, I guess it depends on what is happening with the broader investing public. If people say, you know what, we, we need more clarity, we don't really want exposure uh, to these investments, or maybe they think, hey, we still do, it was just a bad year or there are a few bad apples. I think there'll always be companies that um, mutual fund, private companies and mutual fund companies will, will want to be. And I think we are in an era now where that will continue to happen. But, you know, we have enough uh, bad situations like WeWork. I think there'll be, you know, a lot more uh, caution uh, when people start to invest in those. But the other point I wanted to make is that there's plenty of hyper growth um, companies on the public markets that are just as risky. And, you know, you can sell them if you want to really easily. So I don't know why you have to go in the private markets. In, and there's plenty on the public. What, Peter, finally, what do you make of the fact that we're seeing so much of the helium come out of this balloon without broader ramifications to uh, the stock, the publicly traded stock market or to the economy. I mean, this whole cycle seems to be happening almost in a vacuum. I mean, that's great, right? I mean, that's kind yeah. of what you want. You want um, areas of um, high speculation to implode in an isolated way. Right. And, and, and the stuff that isn't, you know, terrible to continue to go up. It shows that something's working in the system where the spillover didn't happen. I'm not saying that's always going to be the case. It could just be there's so much money um, moving around, like your previous guest said. But uh, for now, I, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, let's um, let it continue. Yeah. Let it continue. <laughs> exactly. Of course, now I'm worried uh, we're, the shoe's about to fall and, and exactly, it's going to yeah. make a lot I more sense. I shouldn't have said that. I right. should not have said right. that. <laughs> exactly. Uh, looking like the prophet of doom with your black turtleneck, too. Uh, Peter, <laughs> thanks. It's great to see you. We appreciate it. Great reporting. Thanks, Kelly. Peter Evis from The New York Times. Here's what else is straight ahead on The Exchange. Coming up, here comes the spring selling season. We'll tell you what renovations give you the most bang for your buck. Plus, how the coronavirus could be the black swan that takes the momentum out of the tech rally. And a look at how Americans are addicted to tax refunds. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Back to the exchange. If you're thinking about home renovations, it's getting tougher to get the most bang for your buck. Costs are up and buyers are looking for very different things these days. Diana Olick is live in Washington with more. Hi, Diana. Hi, Kelly. Yeah, this year overall, we're getting a little less of a return on our renovation investment, 63.7%. That's down from last year and below the last decade high of just over 71%, according to Remodeling Magazine annual report. That's because the costs to do the projects are rising, mostly labor and material costs. Okay, so drumroll, what particular project yields the best return in resale value? Exterior improvements. Nine out of the top 10 leading investments were outside. Manufactured stone veneer comes in at number one with a nearly 96% return on investment. 
A garage door will pay you back 94.5%. A mid-level kitchen remodel rounded out the top three, but with just a 78% return. And bathrooms, they didn't even make the top 10. You do better with window replacements, a new deck, new front door and siding. It is all, Kelly, about the curb appeal. It's, this is like the third time in the last 15 minutes uh, replacing a deck has come up, Diana, because, you know, Trek's the stock that gets <laughs> mentioned. Um, what is driving these, these trends to enhance the curb appeal? Is there something macro we can infer from this, especially at a time when the housing market is so tight? Well, you're looking actually at an older housing stock right now. We haven't seen housing starts and new home building improve the way we'd like to. So a lot of people are renovating older homes. When you look at the home from the outside, you want to see that it's secure, that you're not going to have any flood issues. You're not going to have rot or mold. And when you talk about all these renovations that seal the windows, seal the foundation, keep the front door, that's what people are looking for, something that keeps the house really safe. That's a great point about the fact that the housing stock just gets older and older and needs a lot of... uh investments, as as some of us have learned firsthand. Um, Just finally on this, given what we've seen with the housing market, the tightness in December especially, maybe kind of enhanced by the unusually warm weather, um, what's happening with renovations relative to selling overall? You know, it used to be the case a decade ago, people were stuck in their homes, so they thought they might as well fix them up. What's the dynamic at play now? Well, people are really stuck in their homes even more now, and especially because you have incredibly low mortgage rates. If you start to see mortgage rates tick up, nobody's going to want to give up that rock-bottom rate for anything higher. So we're seeing very, very low mobility, not a lot in the move-up market. And as you said, when people stay, they want to fix it up. They want to make it the way they want it exactly. And so we are seeing a lot more dollars going into renovation. Fascinating. Diana, thanks. We appreciate it. Diana Olick in Washington today. Coming up, shares of Smile Direct Club are tanking on an NBC investigation that alleges its products harmed consumers. The company is responding and we will have the latest ahead with the shares down about 15%. Plus, the coronavirus outbreak could accelerate America's decoupling from China. And that could be particularly bad news for the tech sector. We'll look at the companies that would be hit the hardest. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in two. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Here are some of the movers this hour. Expedia is leading the Nasdaq today, and the shares are on pace for their biggest jump since 2015. This after posting better than expected profit and revenue. Expedia didn't offer guidance for the year. They cited business uncertainty and the impact of the coronavirus outbreak, but investors loving it otherwise. The shares are up nearly 11 percent. Canopy growth soaring after a narrower than expected loss in revenue that topped estimates. 
The company saw strength in its recreational, quote, business-to-consumer segment, where sales jumped 32 percent. That's a 15 percent gain for CGC. And Bed Bath & Beyond continuing its decline, down nearly 6 percent today. After falling 20 percent earlier this week, this retailer is down 34 percent this year. And finally, just want to draw your attention to the Dow, which is now at session lows. This as Boeing has begun to lose steam uh, on reports that airlines will push back their use of the 737 MAX. We'll continue to monitor it for you. Uh, but first to Brian Sullivan for a CNBC News update. Hi, Brian. Hi, Kelly. Thank you very much. Here's what's happening at this hour. The Department of Justice has decided not to pursue charges against former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, closing an investigation into whether he lied to federal officials. The decision revolves a criminal investigation that spanned more than a year. A Chinese woman involved in a security incident at Mar-a-Lago has been sentenced to six months in jail. Lu Jing was found guilty earlier this week of resisting arrest. She was given credit for the 59 days she has already spent behind bars and was also ordered to stay away from the resort. The flu is still widespread in 48 states. According to the CDC, all but six states reporting high activity. That's actually a slight decline from last week. So far, at least 26 million people have come down with the flu this season. And Americans are expected to spend $1.7 billion on their pets this year, up 17% from what they spent 10 years ago. The average person has earmarked 12 bucks for their pets on Valentine's Day. That's almost double what they spent last year. I don't know what they're buying. That is the CNBC News update at this hour. I thought that spending would be up more, Brian, than just 17% when I look around. It's Valentine's Day. Yeah, okay. That is up double anyhow. Brian, thanks. Here's what else is coming up on the exchange today. Ahead, smile direct investors aren't smiling today. Why tech companies shouldn't worry about Facebook's copycat attempts. Bye bye, Barneys. And a look at Walmart's bad bets. It's all coming up on the exchange. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories on this Friday, on this Valentine's Day, that should be on your radar. It is time for Rapid Fire. And here to break down the headlines are Robert Frank, Rahel Solomon, and Dom Chu. Hello, all. Uh, first up, we wanted to show you uh, shares of Smile Direct Club. Look at this price action today. It is sinking about 15% after an NBC News report revealed complaints, guys, from hundreds of unhappy users. Um, they talked about pain, broken teeth, even nerve damage. It's been a rough go for the teeth-straightening pioneer here. The shares are down more than 40% since going public last year, which interests me for a couple of reasons. Number one, obviously, what's happening in this particular case. And number two, what's happening with a lot of direct-to-consumer startups that are going belly up lately. A very popular business yeah. I would say that the first thing that I, I, I looked at was the story about what they were alleging. And then, of course, Smile Direct puts out its own statement, which they should, mm-hmm. and which we should say. They said that the company, the NBC News report, didn't ask any of the hundreds of thousands of satisfied customers right. how they felt about the product as well. But when I did it, because the markets guy in me says, well, I mean, this is crazy. Look at the stock action. I immediately turned to what's happening with Align Technology, right. which makes a competing type product with this particular function. Had been one and, of the best performers on right. NASDAQ a couple of years ago. And it's ago. actually up on the day in a down tape against what we see with Smile Direct. So there, there are certainly ripple effects going on from this NBC News report for and sure. And to your point, here's what Smile Direct had to say. Uh, they said, we're disappointed that though we provided NBC with the opportunity to obtain all relevant facts as to the safety and efficacy of teledentistry, 
For the provision of clear aligner therapy, NBC failed to provide its viewers with a balanced and fair news story reflecting those facts. The piece misrepresents Smile Direct Club and the quality of care provided by the over 250 state-licensed dentists and orthodontists across the country who use our platform to treat their patients. Look, and, and that's always the case when, you know, any of us who've done investigative piece, the company always says, well, why did you choose to focus on the negative? Cherry picking. And, right. and you should have focused on, you know, the, the, the people that, that had a positive experience. The difference with this as a consumer company is you're dealing with people's health. And that's where you get into an issue where we've been hearing these warnings from orthodontists that, granted, do have a financial incentive to attack this company. Sure. But these are serious claims. They're numerous and I think when you go to the fundamental, our, our people, whether it's sort of true or representative or not, You're trying to find the out marketing impact of this for people that are, that are deciding whether to spend this much it's money or yeah. use traditional orthodontics. I'd just say, you know right. what, I'd rather have a slightly crooked teeth than to have that happen. Well, right. one thing that I think is important is we, I would love to know how many people who get traditional braces and orthodontics work also face some issues. Because isn't there a risk anytime you get any sort of procedure sure. done, whether it's cosmetic point. or not? And so I think... You know, that's one thing that I would love to hear. Yeah, well, again, the stock is kind of jumping to the, not the worst-case conclusion, but certainly that this doesn't bode well. Um, and, and, again, it's only the latest. In fact, the next thing we're about to discuss is kind of the same theme with a lot of these startups lately, which are hitting the skids. This one is about uh, Jet Black. Walmart says it's shutting down that personal shopping service later this month. This, after talks with potential investors to spin it off, uh, the business reportedly stalled and represents yet another bad bet in the retail giant's competition with Amazon. In fact, Let's get a little more detail on this from Ms. Lauren Thomas, CNBC.com retail reporter. Lauren, what, again, before I jump to like really you know macro conclusions from this, what went wrong in this particular case? Sure. Well, it's funny. I remember two years ago, roughly, I was out in Bentonville, Arkansas, when Mark Laurie, the head of e-commerce with Jenny Fleiss, who was actually the co-founder of Rent the Runway, announced this and kind of laid this out at their annual shareholders meeting. Um, and they built it as, you know, the future of retail. Jet Black is launching in New York, in the New York market. It's this text-to-order service where you pay a $50 monthly fee, so that adds up to $600 annually, um, to essentially be able to, everything but fresh groceries. You can just text, you know, I'm looking for a birthday present for, you know, my son's friend's party or, you know, I'm looking for a dress for this occasion. And you interact with a customer service rep who then ultimately offers you a few suggestions. You know what's amazing and, to me, given that this yeah. is $600 a year, weren't they, you were saying, reportedly losing $15,000 a customer? Per customer. That's crazy. Exactly. How is yeah. that possible? Yeah. So I, I think Walmart they hoped in launching this to obviously get into more into the New York market for starters, which they don't have any stores in New York, um, and to try to reach a more affluent customer as well. Um, yeah, someone who's going to pay $600 per year, and you compare that to an Amazon Prime membership, which is just $119. Right. Um, and I think reportedly they had fewer than 1,000 members um, as of the end of last year. Yeah, I mean, year. look, skeptics Signed always on. said this, is, this doesn't make sense for Walmart. And Walmart, by the way, on its own with its own investments, has been doing a great job lately. So... I don't know what else we should say about this beyond it being a bad fit. One thing I would wonder is, were there minimum purchases that you have to make? Because if not, I think I saw a story, it might have been in the journal a long time ago, that you could order something relatively inexpensive and think about the labor costs associated with every time I want to order a box of diapers or something yep. for Dom or something for Robert, you know, the delivery costs associated with that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I don't think there were any really minimum thresholds with this service. It was really everything goes. I mean, I heard, uh, actually spoke to someone who was working on this project. And, you know, if you wanted some extravagant bottle of champagne, you know, Walmart would 
get that through the service and a courier would deliver it. First place I go for extravagant champagne is Walmart. Of course. But I think to myself, immediately when I saw the story, I I didn't think of Jet Black. I I, kind of thought to all the other e-commerce investments, like Moose Jaw. I've ordered from them before. Bonobos or all these other like mini platforms. Are they doing okay in this e-commerce side of things? Right. Well, I think Walmart had this strategy. They bought Jet.com back in 2016, and that's really when it started. And then since then, it's ModCloth, which they actually sold off last year. Bonobos, which last year actually laid off employees. Um, Hayneedle, which has shut down its headquarters. So you've seen a lot of these bets that they've made on these direct-to-consumer kind of startups, and and they're not doing that well either. Um, So you have to look. It's like, is this a bet? Walmart arguably is actually trying to do something, you know, to compete with Amazon online. But when does it get to the point where the bet isn't? See, that's what happened to Moose Jaw. Because I used to love Moose Jaw. And now I just don't. They don't have the great selection. They don't have the great prices. They don't have, like, the high premium stuff that I used to get there. That's what happened. Walmart bought them. Walmart doesn't want you to know, though, that they know. I just mean, this is the Walmart thesis. The Walmart thesis for the past year is that double-digit crazy growth in e-commerce yeah. and online sales. Right, right. So but Grocery, though. I think it's it's grocery that's boosting I online. wonder, and Lauren, actually, stay here. A quick coda to this story. We were going to mention anyways that Barney's is closing its stores. And I wonder if, if Jet Black would have, Robert, been a better fit for someone like Barney's. Because it, that's the whole, I mean, that's the, the customer, right? I mean, would it have both saved Barney's and saved Jet Black if they had found a better partner? I don't know if anything could have saved Barney's. Barney's was one of those sort of proudly, outrageously expensive and proudly exclusive stores where you have to be somebody to come here. And they were sort of pre-selecting brands that no one knew about. I think online you can do that yourself today. Mm-hmm. Discover these top designer brands that no one knows about. So, and they were so expensive that in an age where price comparison is so easy, right. everyone's sort of sad about it. And then they would say, I never shopped there, but it's sad they're closing. Hear me out again. Just, I'm just going to throw this out there as, yeah. I, as I think through all of this. Is it possible that the sort of disruptor era that had a proliferation of all these brands, this direct-to-consumer revolution where people could go individually and, and go directly and get what they need, but is there a case f- to bring back the aggregator, much like we're seeing how TV has gone to streaming and now you need an aggregator all over again? I can't keep track of all the direct-to-consumer brands. Couldn't Barney's have played a role in something like that if they had just kept up with the changing technology? Yeah, you're, you're either an aggregator or you're the sort of uh, arbiter, right? And I, and I think people don't want an arbiter of taste, an arbiter of brands anymore. They want to discover them. But they want to find them. And you can do Where that. do you find it on Instagram? Well, you know, Where you know are doing really stuff? well at that Stitch Fix? Yeah, yeah. they're they're sort of that middle person, and they do let you decide, but they sort of sort of aggregate it for AI. you. So it's a little bit of both. And Stitch Fix seems to be doing. I'm really having well at deja that. vu all over again because I think it was just yesterday. weren't we doing a story on Rent the Runway? Yes. And how many problems they're having? Yes. Yeah, ramping up their yeah. fulfillment. Which it could also be a new aggregator, and I, I wonder if ultimately Barney's could have found a niche in something like that. But I guess. For now, you can just go get a great deal. Apparently, everything's like ninety percent off. Be a consultant. <laughs> no, uh, Lauren. Thanks, we appreciate Thank it, Miss Thomas. It. Next up, Delta CEO Ed Bastian joining Squawk Box this morning to make a major announcement about the company. Starting March first, Delta Airlines will become the first airline to go fully carbon neutral on a global basis. Carbon offsets are not the solution. Uh, they are not enough to go around. Uh, we need to be investing in projects that make a difference. A billion dollars over a decade is a big number. But for us, just think about this. It's the equivalent of about $1 per barrel oil in terms of price impact on Delta. So you might be asking, how can an airline go carbon neutral? Delta says they're going to focus on clean technological investments for engines and carbon removal. Ed Bastian saying it will be a big challenge and a big commitment, 
I don't know what any of that it's, means. It's very, right? it's very hard to understand. It's, so it's a little vague. I, I think that there are some assumptions you have to make. I'm not sure if you can really claim with 100% certainty that on, on the flip of a switch on a certain day that you will be fully 100% carbon neutral, no matter how many carbon credits you buy or how many investments but you But is make. anyone going to follow up and say, right. no, you said by March 1 that the, it's March 1 and I, let's see. I, I guess maybe the commentary here is that what they're trying to do is put an emphasis on this whole idea of environmental, social, and governance type exactly. investing. There's Which, this whole theme about it and how all these CEOs are, are latching onto this. Because it's almost it is, every day. We it's hear this that. year's A different company, a different right? industry, it's this every year's day. Cannabis. It's cannabis. I mean, and if you just say But ESG the problem is there, it's not a niche sector. It's taking over the entire I just, S&P 500. I just wrote a research note about cosmetic companies. Now, that's the new thing for this year, sort of becoming more environmentally friendly. It's almost the the... And trendy thing it? to do. Right. And, and it's, again, it's one thing to sort of say, we want you to put more thought into this. But I think people are, are putting a lot of thought into it these days. So are these gestures meaningful or not? And I think that's what the Delta announcement comes back to. You know, Robert, there's a difference between we're going to make sure that we're putting less carbon into the environment and, hey, our business is our business, but we're going to make investments over here that kind of offset it. So in the end, they can't. Look, I don't around. doubt that there's a genuine interest in making the world a better place and making Delta less carbon intensive. But this is all about getting that ESG label on your stock yes, yes. so you can be in those indexes so Ed Bastian's compensation goes way up that, yes, tied to that stock so, price. So that's my point. I mean, Very first simple. of all, and Ed Bastian in that interview said that Jets aren't going to fly on batteries anytime soon. Right. Like they're, going to, they're, they're still going to use jet fuel, which is yeah. a fossil hydrocarbon product. Absolutely. But this idea is every time you buy that jet fuel, you're going to make some incremental investment either in as something like planting a tree or investing in a solar farm project. And that's the whole idea of these carbon offsets. Interestingly right? enough, airlines as well, I think right now about two, two and a half percent of carbon emissions. So it's, it's not even so much that that has a meaningful impact as of now. It's that there's this idea that within 10, 20 years, they could be 25 percent of emissions. And it's a hardest life. And look, this goes back to the Harry and Meghan Markle thing. The, the moment they stop, listen, 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 the moment they stop flying around in a, in a private, and I know they flew commercial yeah. the other day, but the moment yeah. they stop traveling, period, is the moment any of this really means something. And in the meantime, I think everybody feels caught between, I, I need to be doing the right thing about this, but I also need to live my life, and, and I don't know what other solutions We're going to be waiting there. a long time. We're going to wait for them to stop traveling. That's what I'm saying. In the, exactly. in the meantime, Te- teleconference this, teleconference about? that. Yeah. Holograms. Um, thanks, everybody. Robert Frank, Rahel Solomon, Tom Chu. Uh, coming up, Facebook has a long list of copying apps and features, and almost all of them have actually failed. Is this a case of a jack-of-all-trades, master of none? We're going to debate that when we come right back. Welcome back. Shares of Pinterest dropped as much as 4% on the news that Facebook is experimenting with a copycat app called Hobby. If the idea of Facebook copying someone else sounds familiar, that's because it is. Let's go back to May of 2018 when Facebook announced it would roll out a dating feature, setting shares of Match Group taking 22%. But it took over a year to launch, was limited to a few countries, and it botched the EU rollout, as we told you about the other day. Meanwhile, Match has steadily climbed 62% since that announcement. In fact, Facebook's history is littered with attempts to launch app killers that end up falling flat. Here to dig into that and Facebook's track record, Steve Kobach is CNBC.com technology editor, and Julia Borson joins us as well. So, Steve, most people say Facebook is great at uh, imitation because of its success with Instagram stories, but you're saying not so much. Yeah, all their successes, those imitations are putting them into their main apps, either Facebook or Instagram. Stories is the best example, obviously. They clearly took that from Snapchat, and they're seeing huge success with it. They're selling tons of ads in it. 
Every earnings call we hear Sheryl Sandberg talk about how great stories are performing for them. So that's worked for them. It's these standalone apps like we saw with this hobby app that's a clone of Pinterest that have this horrible track record of, of gaining any traction. What are some other examples? There's, there was one years and years ago when Snapchat just started taking off. It was called Poke. And that was literally a clone of Snapchat. And poke, you remember that old Facebook feature, you'd poke your friends. It was really cute and adorable, so they named it that. Or creepy. Yeah, and right now they have a TikTok clone called Lasso, which is a little over a year old, showing no traction at all. They haven't canceled it yet, but I wouldn't be shocked if they do. Julia, do investors say, well, in a way, maybe it's better to be like Amazon and try a bunch of stuff. And if they they fail, that's okay, because the successes will be important enough to offset that versus not having a culture of innovation. Well, look, if you look at uh, Facebook's stock chart, it's managed to be very successful by incorporating some of those features, as Steve just mentioned, into its apps. I mean, if you look at lenses, the way that you could put filters and lenses on top of your photos on Facebook and Instagram now, the success of stories, Facebook has really made this work. But I think what's really interesting is that Facebook is under so much scrutiny when it comes to acquisitions. Um, The fact that now the FTC is looking, re-examining all of their acquisitions, even under $90 million. Facebook really needs to find new ways to innovate because they're not going to be able to go out and buy another Instagram or another WhatsApp as they did in the past. So it does benefit them to have this internal innovation lab, you know, what they're the, the lab that this hobby app came out of. Um, but in the past, these their attempts to have an internal skunk works to yield these apps have not yielded any success in terms of standalone apps, but might have helped their internal in- innovation in other ways. Yeah, and those, th- that internal Skunk Works project, it's a good retention thing. They don't want these engineers running away to a competitor like Google or sure. something, or starting their own startups mm-hmm. and potentially disrupting them. So they say, hey, we'll put you in this cool Skunk Works lab. You can like experiment and play around. But what's interesting to me is most of the apps that come out, they're just clones of other stuff. There's no original innovation. They still look to other competitors for, for those apps. Great point. So finally, if they're not able to buy uh, some of the companies that they they once might have, if they're only able to copy but not necessarily copy well, then does that tell you that Facebook's sort of vulnerable to, you know, the next big platform maybe like a TikTok? Or does the stock performance, Steve, tell you they should just stick to their knitting and stop even trying to worry about all this other stuff? Right. It's better if they weave it into the main apps. You know, Instagram and WhatsApp, those were acquisitions. You've got to keep that in mind. And now they're both massive. WhatsApp just crossed 2 billion users, they announced this week. Wow. So it, it does work but, when they weave it into those main apps. Last word, Julia? Yeah. And I would, yes, I would just say, Kelly, the fact that they have this NPE team that is trying to come up with new apps may end up being valuable for Facebook in other ways. I mean, even if they just get a couple hundred thousand people or a couple million people to download Hobby and play around with it, they may be able to use that information about how people are interacting with these new products to help inform the way they add new features to their core app. So it can be valuable in different ways, but it's interesting to look at the rise of a TikTok and the fact that Facebook and its Instagram have not been able to capture that kind of audience for that same, that sort of same use case. Um, But at the same time, it hasn't slowed down Facebook's growth. That's true. I know. I definitely think TikTok's the one to watch after you're on it. Instagram feels kind of boring and quiet by comparison and slow. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how they'll copy it, but if it's, I'm, I'm sure they'll find a way. Guys, thank you both. Uh, Steve Kovac, Julia Borston today. Coming up, the longer the coronavirus outbreak goes on, the more the tech sector is bracing for impact. We'll tell you where and why to look next. And as we head to break, a look at the most searched tickers on CNBC.com right now. Tesla is still in the lead. It's just over $805 in the trading today. NVIDIA number two on its monster week. The 10-year note hanging in there and Roku is now reversed down 7%. We'll be right back.
Alibaba's CEO called the coronavirus a black swan event that's having a significant impact on the Chinese and global economies. But could the minimal stock impact so far actually be a reason to worry? I'm joined by Steve Milanovic right now. He's a tech strategist at Wolf Research. Steve, welcome, first of all. You know, this really did hit the tech industry so hard because it's centered in China. What has the big implication been so far, and why don't you think the stock reaction has been larger? Yeah, it's funny. The, the stocks really haven't reacted too much, Kelly. So I think the assumption is that this is going to be like SARS or uh, Ebola, where it's, it's going to be kind of contained. It's going to be over relatively quickly. You're not affecting long-term cash flows. But personally, I you know, think there's a little bit more to worry about here. Um, clearly, the hardware and semiconductor companies who both have demand and supply chain in China could be negatively affected by this. So I, I think we've yet to see this fully play out. So who are the companies? I mean, even if you take the case of, say, NVIDIA, which is having a monster week. I mean, the stock is having its best week since, I think, 2015. You look at what's happening with the tech and software ETF. It's at all-time highs today. You look at Bank of America, who said there's money pouring into tech funds, and we've seen the, you know, what the performance has been like. Is it, is it that this, is, this trade has become too popular, that it's just kind of drowning out these legitimate concerns? I mean, how deep do you see the problems being? The, the tech trade is obviously very popular, but it's also pretty narrow. It's really the platform companies like Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Google. Those are the stocks that are really driving the market. The, the average stock in our broad tech index has pretty much been performing in line with the market for about nine months now. So I think it's, it is fairly narrow. Um, and those are also the stocks that probably are in pretty good shape here because they tend to have more U.S. demand. Um, you know, some of the other beneficiaries could be, you know, gaming stocks. If you're staying home as a consumer, Activision. If you're staying in the office uh, in a business, you're using Zoom and, and a lot of these unified communication products. So there are a couple beneficiaries. The Internet and software stocks generally don't have as much China exposure. So it's understandable that they would do pretty well. NVIDIA, I think, is benefiting a lot from the cloud in the U.S. So the Amazons who buy their graphic chips and their data center business of theirs was an upside surprise in the quarter. Right. So that might be a longer term trend story here. And, and should that you said most people are comparing this to the SARS and, and Ebola episodes. Do you think that's not the right comparison to be making? Well, I'm not an expert, but based on what we've seen so far, I think it could be worse. Um, the mortality rate seems to be actually similar or less, certainly than Ebola. But the number of cases, which I think is around 65,000 now, if you look at sort of the curve, it's, it's much steeper than we saw with those two. And, you know, obviously China has a much better transportation system today than it had back then. So I certainly worry that they haven't gotten full containment of it. And then there's the question of did we kind of shut down travelers fast enough? There's a saying that if you're going to panic, panic early. Right. <laughs> so, you know, shut this stuff down immediately. It's not clear that, you know, everybody did that fast enough. So, again, I don't know what's going to happen here, but it seems to me that the stocks at least aren't discounting a significant risk. So if you think the names like Activision, like Zoom, could stand to benefit from some of these trends, whether they happen for a few weeks or, or are more long-lasting, who do you think is more vulnerable? Well, clearly those computer systems companies like Cisco, Dell, HP, HPE, Lenovo, which is Chinese, that both have demand in China and a supply chain. About 90% of notebooks are manufactured in China. Also, obviously, handset providers, uh, Xiaomi, which is Chinese. But then the question, what about Apple? I mean, Apple stock has barely ticked down here. And I know they're trying to open a, their Shanghai store. Um, there's talk about they might have to shift to Taiwan, some of their manufacturing. But still, it's mostly in China. So there's still a little bit of a risk there as well. And then the semiconductor companies are mixed. Applied Materials did bring down its numbers somewhat, mm -hmm. trying to de-risk its outlook. Right. I, I just wonder if all of these investors say, 
you know, yes, it's the outbreak is bad and maybe even it's worse than uh, some of the previous ones. You know, I still don't want to sell the stocks because it's it's still going to pass. You know, is there is there anything that fundamentally changes for these businesses? I think in the in the short term, there's a risk that it, it becomes longer than people expect, so that creates a little bit of a trading risk. Longer term, there's just this U.S.-China dynamic that's in the background that's, I think, much bigger than just, you know, phase one of a trade. And it's a question of, you know, they're hacking us, they're stealing IP, uh, and, and will we increasingly disengage? Right, uh, the bamboo there, curtain, so to speak. Exactly. Will there be more viruses coming out of China? So as a, as a U.S. company, you've got to think about, do I just want to become less dependent on China for demand and supply chain? So there could be some longer term impacts. Maybe that raises their cost of doing business, for instance, and just makes it more difficult, among other things. And reduces their demand long-term as well. True. Steve, thanks so much. Thank you. Good to get your point of view. Steve Milonovich from Wolf Research today. And for more on the coronavirus, tune in to CNBC's special report, Outbreak Coronavirus. That'll be live tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. Coming up, do you take less money in your paycheck in order to get a bigger tax refund check in the end? You're not alone if you do. But is it the right thing to do? We'll get into that next. And in the meantime, let's draw your attention to shares of Virgin Galactic, which are now surging nearly 15% and hitting a 52-week high. This after one of its spacecrafts arrives in New Mexico, which is expected to help its test flights. The stock has nearly quadrupled from its lows in December. We're back in two. Welcome back to The Exchange. Nearly two-thirds of taxpayers, that's more than 111 million Americans, got a refund from the IRS last year. And many are willing to take a smaller paycheck as the year goes for a bigger refund check. CNBC senior personal finance correspondent Sharon Epperson joins me now with that and how people end up spending that big refund once they get it, Sharon. They definitely are spending it. But listen, it's a nice size refund. The average refund check last year was over $2,800. And if you did direct deposit, you probably got $100 more or so on average. So people are getting a nice amount of money. And what's interesting, though, is what they want to do with it. Well, let's rewind for a second, because as you say, if nearly $2,900, people go, oh my gosh, this is a great check to receive in the mail and actually plan their lives around it. Is, does that make sense? I mean, you're, you're, it's your money. You just right. happen to be getting it all at once. It shows that there's some appetite for having almost a forced savings vehicle, doesn't it? Well, a lot of financial advisors say, listen, for cash flow purposes, you want to have that bigger check. You want to make sure that you are withholding enough from your pay so that you're able to have cash flow over time and you don't get that big refund. But people are saying, according to a new survey by Kiplinger Magazine and Barclays U.S. Consumer Bank, no, I want to have that refund. 63% say they want the refund, only 37% want a bigger check. Yeah, I wonder if there's ways to create more vehicles to to kind of move this kind of trend along. But let's talk about when they get the check. What, where does it go? Because we know they're pretty much entirely spent right away. Well, they are actually saving. A quarter of people say that they're saving it. And wow. 7% say they're investing it. But there is a nice chunk of people that are saying, no, I want to pay off my credit card bills or I want to spend it. I need to spend it on everyday things. There are much better uses, though, of what you can do with that check. And I think a lot of people don't realize that the IRS can help you, almost force you to save. Mm-hmm. You can put your uh, refund, have a direct deposit in up to three different accounts. It doesn't have to just go to your checking account. So you can have three different financial institutions, one for checking, one for saving, one for investing, and split your money that way. And then think about ways that you can either save that in an sure. IRA or for emergency fund or where you can, if you have to pay off that debt, put it toward that highest interest credit card bill. I know. Or maybe use the money along to not rack up the credit card bill. Anyway, yeah, exactly. sure. Exactly. A longer discussion to have. Thank you so much. We should My mention pleasure. CNBC and Comcast are investors in Acorns. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. 
Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 